At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. The form of soccer, I think, in a sense, most powerfully gives us something to talk about, right? It, it allows us to kind of narrate games and understand games um, as experiences that really reflect a very wide range of human emotions, you know, everything from the frustration with certain, you know, theatricality of the game to the beauty of the game. Um, and I'm not saying those things are not present in other sports, but soccer definitely has a very peculiar form, you know, um, and to watch it, I think, you know, and to watch it and really enjoy it and love it, it, it it's useful to kind of think about that form and, and, and appreciate kind of all its dimensions. Welcome to the Edge of Sports Podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. This week we speak to Laurent Dubois, author of the book, The Language of the Game, How to Understand Soccer. I wonder what we're going to be speaking to him about. Maybe the World Cup. I've also got some choice words about a long overdue Hall of Fame entry, a Just Stand Up Award for an absolute legend. And lastly, we have a tribute to John McNamara, the sports writer who was killed in the mass shooting at the Capitol Gazette. I'll be speaking to his friend, the great sports writer, David Steele. But first, to start off the show, let's talk to Laurent Dubois. Laurent Dubois, first and foremost, uh, please tell us where you are and what you're doing. Well, I'm uh, ironically enough, I'm in Italy watching the French, uh, the France uh, Argentina game. I'm teaching uh, this week in, in Bologna at the university here. Um, but uh, but excited about this this matchup here between France and Argentina. Um, and I'm heading to France in a couple of days where I'll spend the rest of the World Cup there. So hoping for a win tonight. <laughs> well, I think that mo- most people expect that, certainly. Um, so if, if any goals are scored during the course of this interview, if you need to scream, yell, do whatever. <laughs> okay. Don't, don't, if you hear it, yeah. a moan of pain, it will be an Argentina goal. And uh, <laughs> anyway, yeah, I'll exactly. try, to, try to keep it under control, but thanks. No, no problem. I, mean, I want to talk to you about this World Cup, but first I'm anxious to hear about your book, The Language of the Game, How to Understand Soccer. And I was hoping you could maybe explain the title to my audience, what you mean by the language of the game with regards to soccer. What is that language? Well, early in the book, I, I mean, I just first point out that it's, it's a, I argue it's a kind of language um, and, and in, in a way maybe the most universal of human languages spoken more widely than, than any other language, practiced more widely than any religion. Um, just sort of trying to take stock of the fact that this, this form, this sport um, has managed to sort of spread to so many cultures, feels indigenous and rooted in so many cultures. Um, and the book is really about kind of exploring why that might be in terms of the form of the game, the history of the game, the history of players, and just kind of exploring, um, in a sense, this kind of mystery, which is how this sport has become what it is today and you know what we see represented at the World Cup. Mm. And, and ask us, what is the greatest misunderstanding of soccer by the layman fan or the casual fan or the person who maybe just tunes in for the World Cup? Mm-hmm. Well, I do think soccer, especially for people who are used to uh, sports like American football or basketball, which are very high scoring, um, which have a different relationship to time, which do not necessarily have the same kind of theatrical nature um, or even the, the fact that soccer often seems like it kind of the scoreline doesn't really represent the, the nature of the game. These are all things that can frustrate people. Um, and what I try to do in the book is to sort of explain um, what that actually offers um, as a kind of drama and the ways in which um, the form of soccer, I think, in a sense, most powerfully gives us something to talk about, right? It, it allows us to kind of narrate games and understand games um, as experiences that really reflect a very wide range of human emotions, you know, everything from the frustration with certain, you know, theatricality of the game to the beauty of the game. Um, and I'm not saying those things are not present in other sports, but soccer definitely has a very peculiar form, you know, um, and to watch it, I think, you know, and to watch it and really enjoy it and love it, it, it it's useful to kind of think about that form and, and, and appreciate kind of all its dimensions. And that's what I hope the book will will help both people who you know who are new to the, the sport do and maybe others who are who are already watching but this might give them new kinds of insights about the game what makes soccer so political 
Why is it it always seems to overlap with the political concerns um, of a nation, sometimes for the better, sometimes for the worse? I mean, I think it's inherently political, both at the international and, in, and even at the professional level, where identities, local identities, regional identities, national identities are really tied up with the sport in so many places. And part of that is just the result of it being so widely shared, right? So it's it's at once a f you can express yourself through the play, way that you play soccer, but you're still playing a sport that everybody else can kind of read, one that's legible, right? And that's what makes the World Cup the you know not just the largest uh, sporting event, um, but the most watched event in human history. Right? These are these kind of draw crowds and eyes at a level that we really never see and um, have we never seen before. So there's something really powerful about that. And because of that, of course, the politics on that global stage really become extremely powerful. Um, and uh, yeah, so, and France just got a penalty kick. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, please. No, no, no. Keep, keep filling us in. We'll, we'll do a... From uh, a, a kind of incredible, incredible fast Mbappe run uh, that the Argentines were totally incapable of stopping. So um, interesting. Um, the, the Argentines so... incapable of stopping sounds like something that uh, has been heard more than once in this World Cup. I guess you're right. Yes. Um, so uh, now we'll see whether they can score it. Of course, um, I think it's a pretty clear penalty. Actually, they, I mean it's interesting because VAR now that now with VAR, uh, which is actually I can link that to what we were talking about before. But this is the first World Cup that's used video technology to make um, you know judgments um, during the game. Um, and that's, you know, something again, that's very established in us sports, but has been very, very resisted in, in America, in soccer and is still very limited in its use. Um, so there's another, you know, zone of difference. Um, so, yeah, I did want to ask you about those, um, zone of zones of differences, um, internationally, because there has been a critique laid against, uh, international soccer for, I mean, really for decades, uh, that, the styles mm -hmm. of play no longer represent uh, the nationalities because the game itself has been flattened. Um, do you see that as the case? Yeah, I mean, I think it's always been the case, actually, that the the um, idea that there was a kind of national form of the sport was a bit more the results of writers and journalists than necessarily. I mean, you know, there's there's a, mm. there's you can build a mythology around that idea, right? Brazilian soccer certainly has a certain flair and style, but Brazilian soccer is also very defensive and very physical. Um, there certainly are cultures of the game, and people can be taught to think and play about the game in certain ways. Um, but that, you know, that, that doesn't sort of, there's not some direct line, I think, between culture and that in a certain way. Also, of course, certainly today, people watch the games played all over the world in, a national, in an international game. Most of the, uh, and France scored a penalty. Um, so one one zero for France. One nothing. So, the most of the um, and uh oh, uh, Griezmann is doing a very bad dance. That's one of his featured featured. Uh, uh, <laughs> one so, um, so basically, um, that is uh, something that I think, yeah, I mean, kind of kind of is, is important to to kind of understand and, and think through. Today, of course, when you watch a World Cup, you're watching. I mean, here's an interesting statistic. For instance, there's 52 players from France that are playing at the World Cup uh, on the French team, but also Tunisian, Senegalese, uh, Moroccan teams. They've grown up in France, but with double nationality. So there are certain parts of the world where uh, training and infrastructure have led to the production, you know, of really strong soccer players who then move all over the world, play professionally with other players. So they're not going to go to the World Cup and play like in a totally different style than they do um, in their professional game. So um, that said, during the World Cup, it's still, you know, things certainly come up about the relationship between a nation and identity. Um, just the question of, you know, uh, Messi versus the style of Argentinian soccer, which comes up all the time. These, these are questions that I think are very interesting for fans to talk about because they allow the kind of correlation between the drama on the field and much bigger political, social, cultural questions. I mean, you're obviously a fan of the First Order in addition to being a, a writer and an academic. Uh, when did you fall in love with this game? Well, I played growing up. I mean, I have a kind of funny history, which is that we migrated from Belgium when I was a, a child, a very young child. So I grew up in suburban America in the 70s, you know, when there was the kind of grow, growth of soccer, in fact, in Bethesda, Maryland specifically. Um, so I played as a kid. Um, it was a, a way in some ways to connect with other European kids and, you know, kids were sort of from, it was, a, you know, an area with people from international population. Um, so that was a really, you know, sort of an important part of growing up. But I, I wasn't really watching the sport that much just because 
because you couldn't that much when I was growing up in the U.S. Um, and so kind of the second wave of my interest really emerged uh, in the 90s um, when I had already started working on the history of French colonialism and French empire and the 1998 French team um, won the World Cup with a you know diverse team and it became a deep, deep and profound political symbol for France. Um, and I became really interested in the way the sport um, was becoming a kind of space for political debate um, and condens condensing, crystallizing politics. Um, and I have, that's what I've written about in, in an earlier work, which is about so French soccer, which is my first book on soccer. Yeah. Well, can you give the title of that book? I did see that. Yeah, that's a book called Soccer Empire, the World Cup and the Future of France, which was published in 2010, really focuses on the 2006 World Cup on Zidane's headbutt during that World Cup um, and on Zidane and Chirama's players, these two players, you know, one of one of Algerian background and another of Guadeloupean background who have become these great icons in, in France um, and are kind of the, you know, the prior generation to the one we're seeing today on the field. I was going to ask you what what has a greater cultural stamp on the soccer culture of France or the soccer history of France, the World Cup victory or the Zidane headbutt? I think that's a probably a hard. I mean, they're so intertwined, and Zidane is at the center of both of them. Um, I found the His head, head is so at the fast. center of both of them. Actually. His head is at this exactly. And an interesting, you know, Zidane when he was growing up, learning to play soccer, he played, you know, in the in the projects that we lived up up in Marseille. But he never headed the ball. Like he didn't want to head the ball. He didn't think it was an interesting way to to move the ball, which is in a way true. Um, so when he when he got there to his academy when he was thirteen, they sort of said, "You should probably learn how to do a header." And so he studied and um, to good effect. But I, I think that the head but to me, um, like Maradona's hand of God, like other moments in the sport where things kind of almost like the fabric of the sport tears open a little bit. Um, it's incredibly fascinating. And it's, you know, from the 2006 World Cup, we know Italy won. And that's, of course, very important to Italians. But it, that moment is still far more talked about in a way, um, still a kind of incredible center of discussion, something you can bring up almost anywhere in the world and people will have an opinion about it and you can have a conversation or an argument about it. Mm. Do you, do you think, do the Italians resent that, 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 that particular World Cup? Not exactly bathed in glory. Very interesting. You know, it, it, I mean, one, in the sense of being at the center of the story, even though his team lost. Um, and so, but, but Zidane is an incredibly fascinating figure. And so many of these soccer figures are just, you know, really rich to think with and to, to think about. And, and the book is, the language of the game is really constructed around those kinds of stories about these players who've kind of left a mark on the game. So I, di I did want to ask you about this World Cup, and I... And I Please don't want to take too much of your time. I know you're you're zeroed into this game, which I totally respect and understand. Um, so, what are the stories in this World Cup that you're following most closely? Well, I mean, unfortunately, it ended now. But the story of Senegal was very inspiring and interesting. I thought that was a really great team, and you know, there's always this desire. Um, I think you know, there's African football struggles against a lot of structural issues and finances and so forth, and and it was exciting to see such a great team. And it, it definitely was wonderful to have them at the World Cup, along with a number of other teams. Um, you know, some that did better than others. Um, then there's you know the the kind of stories that crashed, like Egypt and Mosala, which going in people thought was going to be like maybe the big story of the World Cup, and um, that's the the, the sort of wildness of the tournament is things can twist and turn in all kinds of unexpected ways. Um, to me, of course, the teams of France and Belgium are both really interesting because at a moment when there's, you know, such powerful tensions in Europe around Islam, around race, immigration, um, you have these teams which are very, very uh, multi-ethnic that have a very broad um, kind of demographic, you know, that they show in some ways um, what the nation is as against what some people w would imagine it would be or want it to be. Um, the French team in particular, you know, is a team where the 16 of the players are of African or North African or Caribbean background. Um, and on the Belgian team, you have the star striker, Lukaku, who's of Congolese descent and, um, you know, has written some really interesting things about his, his growing up and confronting racism in France. So these are, I think, are powerful stories. And if one of those teams, you know, as they win, um, that becomes a, a space through which people can make different kinds of political claims and sort of say, well, this is our nation, you know, our nation looks like this, and maybe we can embrace that, um, rather than see it as a, as a problem. Are you hopeful that uh, soccer is in fact that powerful? I mean, this nativist wave in Europe feels ascendant, strong, strong and yeah. frightening. Can soccer yeah. be a counterpoint to that? I mean, I think as a counterpoint, it's it's certainly not, you know, powerful enough in the absence of, you know, just political mobilization and, and struggle against those forces on all other levels. Um, it, you know, it is a form that can allow people to think and find hope and promise and alternative visions. Of course, I mean, soccer can also sustain very much nativist <laughs> nativist projects as well. It's certainly not, um, you know, it can go lots of different directions. So it, it has to be used, right? And 
what always fascinated me about this player, Lilian Thuram, was that um, he used, in his generation, he used his iconic status to to really campaign against racism, to to use that um, in a kind of a constant way. And that's that's something that it's interesting because, as of course, I know you write and, and cover a lot about uh, the, the politicization of athletes in the United States. I brought Lilian Thuram to Duke in 2009. And at that time, he sort of was almost critical. He sort of said, it's strange to me from France how apolitical the African-American athletes are of the United States. You know, we admire them as athletes, but we're kind of it's strange to us that they, they aren't more political. And it's sort of interesting to see how drastically that's changed, um, you know, in the last years. But um, so I think. I, I think those are important stories. I think even the way in which sort of support for the Mexico team has played out in the United States is really interesting politically and, and is offering people a kind of alternative, um, you know, the idea that maybe as, as U.S. citizens, we should support Mexico as kind of one of our teams. Um, I think is, it can be a really powerful point. Um, and, you know, you've seen that people feeling, you know, mobilizing in support of, you know, the Mexico games in L.A. and those sorts of things. And these, these are really important in the political moments we're in, I think. Um, so... Yeah, you mentioned Mo Salah before. Can can you speak about what makes him such a political lightning rod and the ascendancy of Mo Salah as this person who the Chechens, the Egyptians, the Muslim world all seem to be um, attempting to appropriate? And, mm-hmm. what, and what, where, where do you think he is in all of that? I mean, it's interesting because I think there's a, I mean, I think he has been in some ways overtaken by some of this, right? And in a certain way has been you know, used and put to ends that, you know, maybe he's not fully, uh, you know, supportive of, or, I mean, you know, I think, I think that this, some, some of this has to do with the Egyptian football federation itself and what they've done. But um, there's just this desire, uh, you know, that emerged as when he was such a star at Liverpool to, you know, to have a figure like him who, who grew up in Egypt, came from Egypt, is, you know, Muslim, very practicing, um, very much sort of, you know, out, out front about his, his religious identity um, in a moment of Islamophobia and so forth. So something about the sort of connection and embracing of Liverpool fans with, with him, um, you know, gave a kind of powerful, hopeful sense. Now, of course, once again, you know, that itself can't overtake all these larger forces. But um, in the Arab world, certainly, there was a kind of desire, I think, to see him um, as a symbol. And the fact that Egypt was going back to the World Cup after such a long hiatus made it all the more hopeful. And that it does seem now that the kind of, in many ways, the bad management around the Egyptian team and of Mosala specifically, um, you know, in addition, of course, to his injury and the worst tackle ever um, during the Champions League by Sergio Ramos was you know, did did kind of, in a sense, undermine that team, which which had a lot of talent and ended up, you know, really playing disastrously when they, you know, and, and having really, really sort of pretty bad games to the surprise of many. And and one, you know, in soccer, it's great to have one star player, but as you can see with many teams, that's not enough. You know, if there's not a real coherence to the team, that's not going to, that's not going to be able to make a difference. Playing out on your television as we speak. Mm-hmm, absolutely. <laughs> exactly. Yes, absolutely. So I think that's a powerful, and that is a powerful, I mean, that is a thing, you know, it's going back to our earlier thing about sort of the differences between soccer. I mean, one of the things I always point out is in a soccer game, of course, in the stop, the coach does actually very little during the soccer game. Um, the coach can, you know, make substitutes, can whisper things to various players, but it's really the psychology of the group on the on the field that, you know, if they go down a goal and they can kind of pull it together and come back and you can watch a group of people either, you know, sink into a certain kind of despair or, you know, a not be able to handle it or kind of charge up and kind of move into a, a powerful response. And it's it's amazing to watch, I think, just that the power of seeing that group kind of emerge and the counterpoints between personalities in the group, I think, is very powerful in soccer um, and something that I really like to watch for. No, well, well, you've been very generous with your time. I want to make sure that you can get back to the game. Uh, before before we let you go, um, something we do ask all our guests is what kind of music they're listening to. I guess I'll, I'll ask you that question in terms of what's getting you psyched up to teach, write, and enjoy the World Cup. Mm-hmm. I mean, one of the people that I've, I've been listening to a bunch, actually, is uh, a musician named Strome, who's a pop Belgian pop star. Um, and he wrote a really interesting song about uh, soccer called Tafet. was a sort of anthem in the 2014 World Cup for Belgium. Um, I mean, he's got a lot of great music. He's very, very interesting kind of voice coming out of Europe um, and kind of uh, just sort of representing a certain experience of black Europe for one. 
um, but also just really funny and interesting music. Um, so that's been kind of uh, in my in my ears because this year, in addition to France, I'm really excited about the prospects of the Belgian team as someone who was born in Belgium. Um, mm. So that's what I've that's been in what's been on my uh, uh, repeat for me, uh, among other things lately. And can you leave us with a prediction? Who's going to be in the finals of this World Cup? Um, I think there's a very strong chance that France will make it to the finals um, if they can keep it together. You know, France is a team that at its, at its heights is just extraordinary, but they also have a lot of lows. So you've got to kind of track that. Um, I do think Brazil, you know, if they if they can cohere as they seem to have been, you know, is also going to have a very strong chance. But actually, it's a, it's one of the more wide open tournaments I've experienced. You know, I think um, I wouldn't be, you know, I wouldn't say that Mexico might not make it into the final. I wouldn't even say that Croatia might not make it into the final. I mean, there are a lot of teams. I'm hoping Belgium will do well. So it's going to be a fascinating uh, next little set of, of games because I think really things are very wide open. And, you know, the thing about soccer, that a little tiny thing, little tiny difference, as we saw, you know, when Senegal was knocked out on this difference in fair play points. Um, the smallest of things, you know, makes the biggest of difference on the World Cup stage. And that's what, in a sense, makes it both sort of awful in some ways when it happens the wrong way, um, but also so riveting as a spectacle. Mm, Laurent Dubois, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. It's been a pleasure. It's so great to uh, be on with you. Love the show, and uh, thanks a lot for having me. back right after this but first a quick word from the sponsor of this podcast the nation magazine okay look the need for independent journalism has never been more important and the nation brings it each and every week like they've been doing since 1865 i'm serious this is what you gotta read it's the nation magazine go to the nation.com slash subscribe and please never forget that when you support The Nation magazine, you are also supporting the continued existence of this podcast. So please subscribe. Go to www.thenation.com slash subscribe. And now, back to the Edge of Sports podcast. And now, I've got some choice words about a long overdue Hall of Famer. For years, he was merely the answer to a trivia question. Who was the first black player in the National Hockey League? The answer, Willie O'Ree of the Boston Bruins. Now at long last, Willie O'Ree is going to be enshrined in the NHL Hall of Fame. For the 82-year-old O'Ree, this honor was both long overdue and could not have come soon enough. O'Ree made history when he took the ice over 60 years ago. It was January 18, 1958, his Bruins playing against the Montreal Canadiens as the NHL became the last of the four major leagues to integrate. Now, the career of Willie O'Ree was not nearly Hall of Fame caliber on its own merits. In only 45 career games, he scored just four goals and had 10 assists for 14 points. But what he withstood in order to make it to the NHL tells the story of a Hall of Fame trail that was blazed against towering odds. These odds had more to do with the New Brunswick, Canada natives' attempts to navigate the minor league hockey towns in the United States rather than his home country. As O'Ree said to NHL.com, dealing with racism was a daily reality, but was, quote, much worse in the U.S. cities than in Toronto and Montreal. Fans would yell, go back to the South, and how come you're not picking cotton, things like that. It didn't bother me. I just wanted to be a hockey player, and if they couldn't accept that fact, that was their problem, not mine. In addition to facing down these racists and excelling on the ice, O'Ree was blind in one eye. I spoke with Dave Kaufman, a Montreal-based talk show host and journalist, about what O'Ree must have endured. He said to me, Can you imagine what that guy faced playing in small towns and small-minded big towns when he was coming up? Much like with Jackie Robinson and Larry Doby in baseball, O'Ree paved the way for guys like black NHL players Wayne Simmons, JT Brown, and my favorite player, P.K. Subban. His election to the Hall is long overdue. Now, the immensity of O'Ree's accomplishments can be seen in the fact 
that his taking the ice did not break open the dam that was stifling opportunity for black hockey players. There would not be another black player in the NHL until 1974. He blazed a trail and it literally took another generation before anyone was allowed to follow in his footsteps. It's for reasons such as this that in 2008, Willie O'Ree, who again I just have to say was blind in one eye, received the Order of Canada, the highest civilian award for a Canadian citizen. His impact has been incalculable. As Greg Rashinsky, a senior NHL writer for ESPN.com, emailed to me, Wayne Simmons of the Philadelphia Flyers said it best. I used to think about Willie's story whenever teachers or hockey parents or coaches would laugh at my dream of making it to the NHL. Because as fleeting as his 45 NHL games were for the Boston Bruins, they happened. He happened. A black man from New Brunswick shared a dressing room with Hall of Famers John Buchik and Leo Boivin and could call Gordie Howe, Jean Beliveau, and Rocket Richard contemporaries. And while his tenure in the league was minuscule for a 100-year-old organization, its impact was formidable. Every young athlete of color with a desire to play could say, Willie did it. And when the journey would take them through the toxicity of racism and classism, the bastards upgraded the cotton balls they threw at O'Ree in the 1950s to banana peels tossed at Simmons in 2011. And they could say that Willie endured it, end quote. It's not just O'Ree's contribution as a trailblazer that has led him to be enshrined as just the third black person to make the Hockey Hall of Fame. It's his decades of work to open up the sport to black athletes. His time on the ice may have been brief, but O'Ree has also put in two decades as the NHL's diversity ambassador. He has spearheaded the league's Hockey is for Everyone program, which has aimed to further the diversity goals in the sport. O'Ree said to ESPN's The Undefeated, I'm being inducted into the Hall of Fame and it is just absolutely wonderful. There are just so many good things that have happened in the past year. I'm just thrilled, end quote. Also thrilled are today's generation of black NHL players, now more than 30 of them, skating and starring in the league that was transformed by the legendary Willie O'Ree. Or as Greg Wyshynski wrote to me, and I think this is a great way to end these choice words, I think about this as we're seeing trans players navigate through participation in gender-specific leagues. I think about this as the NHL still waits for its first active openly gay player, that it's not just about that moment of representation, as vital as it is. It's the way the community of hockey supports it and embraces it, which is why Willie O'Ree remains a prominent part of the NHL's efforts to grow the game and the reason he's now a Hall of Famer. Hey everybody, this is Dave Zirin from the Edge of Sports Podcast. We are trying to add all kinds of bells and whistles to this pod. To do that, we need more folks who can sustain its existence. Go to patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. That is where you'll find us. If you become a patron, you'll see you get all kinds of little treats. But it's so important that people help us sustain and do the work. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. And you can give five bucks a month, ten bucks a month, or if you're feeling mighty generous, a hell of a lot more than that. And all of that helps us do the kind of work that we're trying to do on the regular. Patreon.com slash Edge of Sports Pod. And now back to the broadcast. And now it's time for the part of the show we call Just Stand Up. Stand Up! The Just Stand Up Award to Henry Aaron, arguably our greatest living baseball player. Some would say that title belongs to Willie Mays. I give it to Henry Aaron. Thank you, 755 home runs and a staggering 21 seasons on an all-star game roster. I think that speaks for itself. And at age 84, Henry Aaron is also speaking out and using his Hall of Fame platform to connect with this new generation of activist athletes. At a ceremony for the Hank Aaron Champion for Justice Awards in Atlanta, Aaron said that he would not visit the White House if an invitation came from the mouth of Donald Trump. He said, there's nobody there I want to see. The legendary Hammer and Hank was referring to the athletes in football, basketball, baseball, and hockey who have been refusing the traditional post-championship meetings at the White House on the grounds that they find this president too odious for even a photo op. Aaron's was a statement of solidarity, 
as these players have faced invective from both the bully pulpit of the White House and an executive army of bots and trolls. But Henry Aaron was undeterred. He said, I can understand where the players are coming from. I really do. I understand they have their own issues and things they feel conviction about. They have a right to that, and I probably would be the same way. There's no question about it. That's the Just Stand Up Award for Henry Aaron. This week, we're not doing a Just Sit Your Ass Down Award. We're just doing a tribute to Capitol Gazette shooting victim John McNamara. He was the sports writer over there. I met him a couple of times. Lost his life this week. Sports reporting was his dream job. And even though I only met him a couple of times, I felt like I knew him better because he was very close to people that I do care about. And they're in a lot of pain right now. And we have on the line uh, David Steele, who's a terrific sports writer, a longtime columnist, first for the Baltimore Sun, the Sporting News. David Steele knew John McNamara going way back to their days at the University of Maryland. And we have David Steele on the line right now. First and foremost, um, how have the last uh, few days been for you? Um, first of all, my, my, my greatest sympathies and um, heart goes out to you, man, about the loss of your, your friend, John McNamara. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. It's, uh, it's been hard because, I mean, every time you hear about these mass shootings, it takes something out of you just as a, as a person, as a you know, citizen of the world and of this country. And um, you just sort of get the sense, and I've sort of, you know, shared this and other people have shared it with me and other people these last couple of days. It's like every time one happens, it seems like it just comes another degree closer to you to where it strikes mm-hmm. you uh, personally. And, it, uh, you know, this is what everybody else has gone through when it's been a school or a mall or a movie theater or whatever and when it hits a newspaper office it's like that's you know that's your that's your your vocation your livelihood it's not just the job it's you know what you committed yourself to and then you know it's local so that hurts you even more because you're part of this place that you live in and then it just the the world just gets smaller and smaller and smaller and you realize Mm -hmm. somebody that you may know and then find out that it's been a friend of yours since literally the time that you've um, uh, been a part of, uh, of journalism. I mean, John and I have known each other since my freshman year in Maryland. And uh, he's, you know, one of the first student uh, reporters, you know, that I met there. You know, we had, you know, he was with the Diamondback, then the young group of sports writers there. I was with the Black Explosion, the Black student newspaper there. And we had our little group of uh, sports writers. And we would meet each other either there in the newsroom or in the composing room on campus, or we'd run to each other at events. And we formed a bond and we formed a friendship. And there was this group of us who just knew each other and were all here in the area. And we uh, had stayed friends. And it's just never something that enters the realm of possibility that, you know, any part of that's going to end through something like this. I mean, just the, the the pain and the numbness and the shock of it just is operating on so many levels. And uh, I think the fact that it's now something that's so personal and, you know, yeah. it's, your, it's your circle of friends and you makes you even wonder now, is it ever going to operate on, the, you know, is it ever going to affect the, the circle of your family? The, just how, how close is it going to come? It's hard to believe it will come closer than it is and, cause even more pain than it than it actually is it's but but here it is so who was the john mcnamara that you knew over the decades can you talk about him uh, not just as a friend but as a sports reporter yeah he was just one of the best writers and reporters I've, i've ever known and i i i i i've been really trying to word this carefully and trying to be really uh, cautious about saying this because when I know people, people like John, I always think, man, you know, he deserves to have gotten some sort of national platform. He needed to have been out there where the whole world knows who he is, where, where everybody could have access to him. But in a way, that's kind of, you know, uh, shortchanging, you know, the local, right. you know, people, the people here in this area 
who are just as deserving and entitled of, of great reporting and, uh, and attachment to the, the craft and excellence and to the community that, um, that, 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 that all local papers and local news outlets have. And the fact that he was so tied to um, this area through the Capitol and through the, through the Gazette and through the other local outlets that he's been a part of, you know, he's enriched what it is because he's such a good writer. He's so much fun to read. The topics he takes on are just of so much interest. And he brought such vibrancy and color to it. I mean, no matter where it was, whether it was, a, you know, uh, wizards or, or bullets, you know, that's how far back we go. Uh, Caps, Maryland basketball, Maryland football, um, or all the local stuff. I mean, he was a he was a scholar on local uh, local high school sports. I mean, the kind of conversations that we've had, and you know, it wasn't like we'd run into each other constantly, but when we did, we would talk about you know the days of you know Damatha and Mackin and uh, you know the the counties and. Uh, the local areas, just the stars that have come out of there, you know, the, you know, the Johnny Dawkins is the Jojo Hunters, the Al Dutches and the, uh, Bebe Duren and Craig Shelton and just all the guys that, you know, people who've been in this area for a long time know uh, from their high school days, almost to the, the rec league days. Um, you know, the people who are only known here and also the people who have, you know, blown up nationally, people that we've seen on the biggest stages possible you know, we either knew about them or saw them, you know, at the, at, at the local level. And we, we would talk about that sort of thing all the time. He was really like a go-to source about those things. And he was a big basketball lover. And uh, so that, that was kind of the sport that we always uh, talked about. And uh, he was a St. John's grad, St. John's uh, high school. I went to Carroll. We were rivals. <laughs> um, our schools were rivals back, back in the day in the old, uh, what was then called the Metro Conference, now the you know, WMAC. And, you know, so we knew each other from there and we'd have little jokes about it and joke about the old names uh, from, from back in the day. But uh, just the fact that he was so easy to talk to, so we, so, so much fun and had such a love of sport and love of the craft and love of, uh, you know, writing for an audience that, you know, understood it, appreciated it very appreciated it, appreciated him. And we never had to talk down to whose intelligence he respected. And I, I always feel like they respected him back. And he was, he was more of an institution here than uh, I think a lot of people, um, a lot of people recognize. Mm. Wow. Well, what's the best possible tribute that people could pay to John McNamara going forward? Let's start with journalists. Like what, what's the best possible tribute in terms of our own work to make sure that his work stays with us? Uh, I'd say for one, you know, remind yourself of the of the good work that he did. You know, go dig up the the, the old clips. Go uh, go do the searches and the googles and things like that, and read the stuff that he wrote um, about uh, this area and uh, the the history of it and what's going on in the present and uh, what's going on here in this uh, in this area in this community uh, now because it's what he that's uh, what he cared a lot about. Um, because he, he, he loved it so much and he always had a, 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 a love for his subject and for his readers. Uh, so, you know, return that love, you know, uh, uh, understand what, you know, what it was he did and understand what we all do uh, as journalists in this business. And it's to connect with readers and inform them and keep them uh, in touch with, uh, with each other with others in this area, with people who they don't maybe don't know or understand or are familiar with, but can become more familiar with through, you know, all the uh, outlets, the, the small ones, the large ones, and all the ones in between, whether it's print, uh, digital, visual, audio, radio, TV, all of them. Um, and understand that this is, uh, that, that this was always his, uh, this is always his goal. And uh, I think that it's always interesting trying to figure out what the balance is. I don't know if just having that sort of sensibility made him a better journalist or whether being a journalist gave him that sort of great sensibility uh, for, you know, about, you know, who people are, why they're important and why their lives are, uh, 
are important because that's always what you got from him. You know, when you were no longer talking about journalism or sports or your favorite topic, you just talked about life and society and the circumstances in the world, including things like uh, political differences, hostilities, uh, you know, and things like, you know, shootings, guns, you know, the rage that brings about the violence that we have in this world. And, you know, when we talk about that and how it's so pointless and unnecessary and, you know, how it was, you know, it wasn't as hard as it seemed not to get engaged in that kind of life and that kind of rhetoric and that sort of, you know, constant, you know, antagonism and opposition. You know, he was a person who was who was happy and was surrounded by people who were happy and who he contributed to all those people's uh, happiness through his work and through his personal life. I mean, um, one of the things that kept us, you know, together uh, as friends, this group of us all these years that we used to get together occasionally, even if we were sort of spread out, you know, professionally, we're living in different places and lives were changing, people getting married, having kids, changing jobs, things like that. But we had an opportunity to be together. If it was either running into each other at a game or just sort of planning it, you know, going to a place like, you know, we, we, we used to go to the Fridays in Greenbelt. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. Well, I don't Greenbelt Road or we, you know, go to a place to order pizza and watch a game or something like that. You know, when we were all together, uh, this conversation would go in all sorts of different directions, but it was always in so much fun and so much laughter and so much enjoyment of each other's presence and, you know, enjoying each other's experiences, you know, what we, the, the new things in our lives that we're bringing into uh, this group, but also the things that we had always shared, you know, over the years, uh, going all the way back to our, to our days in Maryland, mm-hmm. uh, which is a long answer to, no, <laughs> to the no, question. I but, that. Uh, it's the sort of thing that, you know, people, I don't know if everybody does that. Right. I don't know if everybody did it back when we were doing it, but, you know, there's certain bonds that are always going to be strong whether you see that person every day or mm-hmm. only, you know, intersect with them occasionally on Facebook or on Twitter or, mm-hmm. or, 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 or through other friends. Mm-hmm. You know, hey, I haven't, seen, I haven't seen Johnny Mac in a while. How's he doing? Oh, they're doing great. I ran into him someplace. Hey, he asked about you or so-and-so asked about you and they're glad you're back in town. And, you know, but he's, you know he was just at such and such a game and he saw such and such and he reminded them of yada, yada, yada. And, those bombs were always going to be there, and it's such a void now that he's that he's not there. And you know, we're all going to do something to sort of keep him and his spirit and his consciousness alive. But it's 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 a void not to have his physical, active presence uh, around all the time. I mean, he's really just such a credit to this business, to this industry, to the the paper that he worked for, and all the places that he worked for, and the the sports that he loved so much and the people that he showed so much care and respect for in the business and out and, uh, and to Maryland. I mean, you know, we went to school a long, long time ago and <laughs> you still feel those, 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 those bonds. You still feel the pride about the people who you interacted with there and you're, who, you know, the sort of thing you want to keep in lo- alive there at that school and, with the people who are coming through there now, the, the students, the, the professors, the instructors, the people who are, are being hands-on and continue these things. And, you know, I hope that they continue to do things, you know, out of respect for him and in his memory, because he uh, isn't, you know, the Carl Bernstein or Connie Chung or one of the legendary people that went through that, that journalism program there but he's one of the great products of that school that he's ever had. And I really will hope people remember that and cherish that going forward. Mm. And I guess my last question for you, first, thanks so much for your time and thanks so much for sharing. What, what, as someone who knew him, what, 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 what do you say to people who are just enraged by this and by just the, the lack of response from, from government, from, 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 I mean, you, you know what yeah. I'm saying. It's like, 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 mm-hmm. like I know, because there's, there's time to mourn and there's time to be angry because these things just keep happening. And there's a lot of different ideas about what to do about it. What's so frustrating is that nothing is done 
other than the thoughts and the prayers. Yeah. And we saw what one of the Catholic yeah. Gazette people said about thoughts and prayers. They yeah. Dropped that yeah. F-bomb yeah. on CNN about thoughts and prayers. Mm-hmm. So, and I, she was entitled to that, that anger and that emotion and that expression. I know I still feel entitled to it, and everybody who feels this way about the 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 the, the it's, it's, it, at, at, at absolute best, it's distance and nonchalance about the cost of human life that this is, and at worst, it's it's been actively encouraging it because you've created, you know, a monster, um, an, an, an evil entity for everybody to turn on this. And this is just this. This is just a, a trademark of the people in power right now: is to create enemies, to turn people against each other, and to create boogeyman, boogeyman, and boogeywomen, and to, to uh, people who can, you know, be your natural enemy and stuff. And you know, when you portray an entire industry that, that's composed, that, that's that's comprised of, of people. And, and lives, you know, into this big conglomerate that you can label the media, and they're all, you know, they, they're all the enemy, they're all evil, you know, you do all of society a disservice. And, you know, people's lives are now at stake, they're on the line, they're, they're in danger, you know, human lives, you know, and it, it's, it's, it's such a wide, wide network of people who are affected by these kind of uh, uh, by these kind of incidents, you know, and to ignore that and to continually show indifference to it uh, is, is is evil in itself. And I don't have any more fear or or, or concern about using that word about it. You don't, you know, you really only want to use it most of the time for the for the most extreme examples of, but this is evil what's going on right now. And people ought to be angry about it and people should not be restricted in, in expressing it because the only way it's going to be stopped is by people never being silent about it. You know, these, these things are too important, not just human life, but, you know, the laws of this country and the important role that journalism and the media and freedom of, of, of speech and expression and of the press play in making this country what it should be, not what it is and not what it thinks it is, what it's supposed to be, what they promised it would be for everybody, whether it ever applied to everybody or not, what they promised it was to be, you know, hold them to that promise and never be silent about it because there's no space for compromise on this. Not when people are literally walking into danger simply by going to work and find and falling victims to people who think that what they're doing is in front of them and that they have the right to take a life, a bunch of people's lives away from the people who care about it, away from this, you know, this, their, their families, their friends, this community and, and this country and this world, you know, we will never be silent about that ever. And, if you need a reason, if you need a, if people need a reason to try to stay strong, just remember John McNamara and all the other people who who died there and all the people who were affected there, and remember that reporter who went on CNN and <laughs> used the language that she did because it came from the right place, because you know, you know, just you know, mindless, meaningless platitudes are not going to make this country what it's supposed to be. It's not going to save lives. It's not going to spare lives. It's not going to. It's not going to put people in positions where they should live and thrive, instead of putting people in danger. That's real talk, David Steele. Man, yeah. th- thanks so much for taking the time, man. I really do appreciate it. It's, it's honestly, it's my, uh, it's my pleasure, and, and uh, you can, you know, <laughs> you, you can always ask me anytime. You know that. All right, be be well, my friend. Thanks a lot. And you do the same, man. You take care.
Well, that's all the time we have for this week. Thank you to David Steele for joining us. Thank you, Laurent Dubois. Thank you to all of our listeners. Please, uh, if you have the time, go to iTunes, Stitcher, your podcast app of choice. Leave a rating. Leave a message. All of that makes a big difference to the health, popularity, and various algorithms for the show. And I have a question I'm throwing out to the audience, to our hotline, 401-426-3343. That's 401-426-EDGE. Are you watching the World Cup? If so, why? If not, why? Please give us a ring and let us know. 401-426-3343. That's 401-426-EDGE. Uh, really appreciate each and every one of you. If people want to support the show, you can always go to patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. That is always appreciated, believe me. And to everybody out there listening, please stay frosty. We are out of here. Peace. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.